this morning. I'm delighted that Greg Voiles will be preaching for us. He is a postulant for holy orders, which means we are discerning with him and the diocese a call to the priesthood. And one way that we can support Greg and others in his position is to invite them to preach for us occasionally. So I welcome you, Greg. Thank you. The Lord be with you. Amen. What would it take for us to listen to the prophets? When I was a seminary student and after in Kansas City, and then I helped pastor a church there from 1997 to 2006, I had the privilege of living for a few years in an intentional Christian community that my friend Brian helped start. It was called Kingdom House. Brian was also the person that I pastored with at a place called Trinity Church of the Nazarene. Our life together revolved around a few core convictions and practices. These were, first and foremost, Christian hospitality, in which we sought to welcome all kinds of people to our dinner table and to be guests in our home uh, and seeking to welcome Christ through them. This included a number of men who were unhoused and struggling with homelessness on the streets of Kansas City. Simplicity was another practice in which we pooled our resources and shared food and other resources and time with one another rather than keeping them to ourselves as private property. One cold Kansas City day, we noticed that a homeless or unhoused gentleman had stopped and sat down on our neighbor's porch across the street to rest for a few moments. Our brother Lance, a skater punk rock kid who is now an Episcopal priest, walked over and handed him a hot cup of coffee. The man looked at Lance and replied, Are you an angel? Lance responded, No, are you? What would it take for us to listen to the prophets? It's interesting that the parable of Lazarus and the rich man should come to our readings today because I just so happen to be taking a bit of a deeper dive in recent days into Jesus and the early church's teaching on, on economics and practice in terms of wealth and resources and such. I find myself in these days resonating with the Eastern Orthodox theologian and novelist David Bentley Hart, whose recent translation of the New Testament has informed my reading in this escapade into the church's practice of economics and Jesus' teaching on such. And in his essay entitled, Christ's Rabble, Hart describes his experience of spending two years recently with the Greek text of the New Testament and translating it. He states, What did surprise me was the degree to which the whole experience left me with a deeply melancholy sense that most of us who go by the name of Christians ought to give up the pretense of wanting to be Christian. At least if by that word one means not simply someone who is baptized and who adheres to a set of religious observances and beliefs, but more or less what Nietzsche meant when he said that there had been only one Christian in human history and he had died on the cross. In that sense, I think it reasonable to ask not whether we are Christians, by that standard we all fall short, but whether in our wildest imaginings we could ever desire to be the kinds of persons that the New Testament describes as fitting the pattern of life in Christ. And I think it fairly obvious that we could not. 
I do not mean merely that most of us find the moral requirements laid out in Christian scripture a little onerous, which of course we do. Rather, I mean that most of us would find Christians truly cast in the New Testament mold fairly obnoxious, civically reprobate, ideologically unsound, economically destructive, politically irresponsible, socially discreditable, and really just a bit indecent. Hart goes on to note that Jesus, the early church, and the New Testament texts roundly critique not only the accumulation of great wealth gained unjustly, but the pursuit of wealth at all as an intrinsic evil. We cannot serve God and mammon, wealth. This is, of course, radical and extreme, not given at all to calm, rational, common sense. But according to Hart, one thing in remarkably short supply in the New Testament is common sense. The Gospels, the Epistles, Acts, Revelation, all of them are relentless torrents of exorbitance and extremism, commands to become as perfect as God in His heaven and to live as insouciantly as lilies in the field, condemnations of a roving eye as equivalent to adultery and of evil thoughts toward another as equivalent to murder injunctions to sell all one's possessions and give the proceeds to the poor, injunctions to do this and demands to hate one's parents for the kingdom's sake and leave the dead to bury the dead. This extremism is not merely an occasional hyperbolic presence in the text, it is their entire cultural and spiritual atmosphere. There are no comfortable medians in these latitudes, no areas of shade. Everything is cast in the harsh light of final judgment, and that judgment is absolute. In regard to these texts, the qualified, moderate, common sense interpretation is always false. I don't know about you, but I find this really troubling. But compelling, nonetheless, and it doesn't help to look at revival movements in the history of the church. The Desert Fathers and Mothers embrace or give up wealth and embrace poverty in community or in solitude to pursue the life of prayer. Middle, in the Middle Ages, revival movements like the mendicants and like Dominicans, Franciscans, they all come about living in community and giving up private ownership to share their resources with each other and the poor. And it's not just monastics and mendicants. Communities of families today, like the Bruderhof and some of my friends at Reba Place Community in Chicago, live in community, pool their resources, and minister to those in poverty. And I have to admit to you, I really am not sure what to do with all this. But I do think there are at least two ways that we should not handle it. The first is becoming so overwhelmed that we do like we have for much of Christian history, aided and abetted by bad translations of the English scriptures, and defang Jesus and the early church's prophetic witness to us regarding these matters, and twist their witness to fit the aspects of our lives that make us comfortable and complacent. This ends up making our lives more convenient, but it also ends up destroying our witness before the watching world. Another way, though, that is just as problematic, that pawns itself off as radical discipleship, but in reality is nothing of the sort, 
is to turn the prophetic witness of Jesus in the early church into another form of fundamentalism and legalism that sucks all the joy and the peace out of life. This also destroys our witness before the watching world. And it leaves us miserable. And if it doesn't kill us physically and psychologically, we will eventually check out and chuck the faith as something that's simply not livable. And this is surely not what the witness of Jesus and parts of the church that have followed him embracing his way, which says that the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it, and we are stewards of the gifts of God rather than owners of those gifts. It can't be that way. It is here that the gospel passage today about Lazarus and the rich man is so illuminating. One vital thing to note is that, though we do see this sometimes, especially in our culture, there's no indication that the rich man despises Lazarus. Rather, he just has never taken time to actually notice that Lazarus is even there at all. He doesn't even seem to know that Lazarus is there at his gate. Even if he has noticed him in the periphery of his vision, he has not really seen Lazarus. And that is the key. Even in Hades, he doesn't bother to speak directly to Lazarus, but only speaks to Abraham as if perhaps Abraham is the superior who orders Lazarus around. And yet, in the end, the rich man seeks wisdom from Lazarus in the form of Lazarus going to his brothers from the dead and speaking to them with his wisdom. In other words, Lazarus is the prophet needed to speak wisdom to the rich man's brothers. But this can only happen if they see Lazarus. But how do we see Lazarus? The suffering, the broken, the poor. Here we are given prophetic illumination by Jesus and the holiness Anglican brother John Wesley. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that if we serve the hungry, the naked, the imprisoned, sick and broken, we meet Christ in and through them. John Wesley taught that in meeting Christ in these people through these works of mercy, not only are they changed, but we are transformed if we don't happen to be poor. Indeed, saved. For Christ meets us through these brothers and sisters and transforms us into his image through them. For they are, like us, created in God's image. For Wesley, these works of mercy are, because we meet Christ, sacramental. And as we get to know these people, they become prophets to us because they teach us about the complexities of their lives through friendship with us. They give us wisdom and show us that without the bodily sacramental contact with them, we probably simply don't know much about being, for instance, homeless, if we have never been homeless ourselves. Interestingly, I heard a man speak the other night introducing a concert. He was a former homeless man. He said, when I became homeless, everything I thought I knew about homelessness went out the window. This is what happened to us at Trinity Church of the Nazarene in Kansas City. Brian and I felt the Spirit leading us to take the life of Kingdom House to the congregational level. 
Now, this didn't look exactly for us like the church in Acts, but it at least meant something similar. It wasn't a legalism. We didn't share all of our resources, but we shared a lot. And not only blue and white-collar families and seminary students became part of the fold, many unhoused or formerly unhoused and drug addicts, recovering drug addicts, became part of the church. But not only this, their gifts began to function as vital parts of the body. They not only prophetically shared with us the wisdom of their lives, they became ushers, part of the musicians on the worship team, leaders of our AA meetings, and served the neighborhood and suffering and broken in them, broken themselves doing this. You see, one of the keys for us is that we did not ask, how can we start doing the work of the kingdom here? That is always, always the wrong question. And we did not embark on another form of legalism. Don't get me wrong, we were young, naive, we had no idea what we were doing most of the time, and we made a million goof-ups. But we realized that the wind of the Spirit was already blowing. God was already doing her work among us. Our task was not to start the work. Our task was to join in the adventure of the work that the Spirit was already doing. And that is our call here, is it not? God is already doing the work of the kingdom among us at St. Bees and has been doing this for years. The unhoused are served in ministries like Room in the Inn and Shower Up. We are already involved in ministries like NOAA, where we work for policy change at the city level and to include and to help the poor and the suffering. We are already sharing resources with one another when we, as particular families, are in need in this congregation. We are gathering around each other's tables and sharing life. Where and how does God want to draw us deeper into the adventure of the kingdom where we meet and are transformed by him in his kingdom? Where at his table the naked are clothed, the hated are loved, the hungry are fed, and the dead and the damned are raised to new life and become prophets. How do we listen to the prophets. Consider that an invitation. Amen.